Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. We're joined by our panel to discuss some of the stories in this morning's newspapers. On one side of the table is the former advisor to the Minister in uh, Department of Justice, member of the PDs, founder and chair of Hibernia Forum, uh, the business and economic column- columnist with the Sunday Times. I'm referring to Cormac Lucy. You're very welcome. Uh, it's Thanks true to say um, Michael McDowell never survived taking your advice? He didn't survive as he lost a seat and I don't think he's ever recovered. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside him is the Labour leader in the Shannon, a barrister, lecturer in law and criminology at Trinity College Dublin, a well-known feminist campaigner and advocate of human rights. Ivana Batchik, you, thank you for joining us. You're no longer running around Dunleary like a mad thing. <laughs> I'm very happy to be in the Shannon with a great Labour candidate, Deirdre Kingston and Dunleary Ivan. And Indeed. thank you for that lovely introduction. Get the plug in. <laughs> On the far side is... Uh, no offence, Bernard, another Liberal lefty. He's spokesperson for Impact Trade Union. He's on the Public Services Committee of the Congress of Trade Union. Bernard Harbour, you're most welcome to the show. Have you your shopping bill ready for government? Uh, we've got one or two ideas which we'll be sharing with them in the ne- over the next few weeks. And uh, thanks for the introduction. It's nice to be called... Uh a uh, liberal lefty rather than a right-wing trade unionist, which I sometimes am called. <laughs> right, you're all welcome. Well, let's take a quick scan through the front pages of today's papers. Uh, the Sunday Independent has another leg of their poll, the Cantor uh, Millward Brown poll. We're now ready to spend. A younger generation leads, leads wave of new spenders. Only 51% believe EU will help Ireland on Brexit. Uh, the Sunday Business Post goes with uh, a follow-up uh, to the new legislation abolishing zero-hour contracts, saying done stores to be hit in workers' rights crackdown. Uh, also on the front page, Radcar and Coveney are warned by FF over tax cuts. We will, of course, after 12 o'clock, be speaking to Micheál Martin in our Cork studio uh, with when he's going to bring this government down after a year of new politics. The Sunday Times leads with another twist in the Garda tale. This time it's another lay person who uh, has disputed Garda authority, you could call it. The lead is Garda analyst washes his hands washes hands of figures fiasco. It refers to a Dr Singh, who's head of the Garda analysis service. Uh, he's written to Noreen O'Sullivan say that he was not prepared to support um, defence of homicide statistics. And the mail uh, on Sunday goes with, you did underlined no commissioner, Garda chief aware of Templemore allegations three days earlier than she do- told the Dáil Committee, claims ex-minister. This is Alan Kelly, who's of course vice chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. And that's where we're going uh, to start uh, our discussion with my panel. And before coming to the panel, let's just take a listen to Niall Kelly. He's the Garda head of internal audit, who was before the PAC, answering questions about financial irregularities at the training college in Templemore. Now, he was talking about his interim report and admitted that he had removed a paragraph on implementation of recommendations after being assured they were already done, when in fact they weren't. But here's a bit more of what he said to the committee. I think there is a different culture at that stage. I think there is a culture of certain the wagons, and I got caught trying to bang into the wagons. It's documented in my report on page 14. Information was held from me. Was it withheld purposely from you, do you believe? Um, 
It could have been. I would also say that it was a mistake on my part to delete that paragraph. And, and you're brave enough and to accept I, that you I, made absolutely, a mistake. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I commend you for it. Yeah. But do you feel that you were duped? I do. Ivana Betchik, uh, tell us in today's papers, there are some new twists. Tell us about this forensics uh, statistician and, and other, shall we say, differences of opinion between uh, senior personnel and the Garda Commissioner. Yes, Ivan, there are some new twists, as you say, today in today's papers, but I suppose they illustrate even further the immense tension that, that appears to exist within the Garda Shikana between the uniformed members and the civilian managers. I suppose you could say the civilian management is a relatively new phenomenon, the fact that you have people coming in, I think in the, uh, the Sunday Independent and the Times both uh, talk about this, you have people coming in who have, are coming from a different culture, they're not steeped in the sort of institutional culture of the Guards. And I should say, when I was on the Justice Committee, we used to have uh, the policing inspectorate in before us and uh, um, the, in, in 2015 they produced a major report on policing generally, which again highlighted some of these tensions. Huge 81 pro- recommendations for Bob Olson. That's right. In fact, the That's blueprint right. you need That's right. to change and in fact, the Increasingly despairing you know, comments at the Justice Committee from the, the policing inspectorate at that time about how difficult it was to see these recommendations being implemented. I suppose a lot of us thought Noreen O'Sullivan's appointment would mark a, a turning of the page and a shift in culture but I think if you look at the Sunday Times front page if you look at the Sunday Independent inside page 6 also has the same story this this is just another as I say Tell us what, what, what so is the story? The story is that Gurchan Singh who is the um, who is uh, um, the the head of head of Garda data analysis that last week he wrote directly to the commissioner to complain about a suggestion that his team had signed off on a review of homicide cases and this was specifically about concerns that homicide cases were being misreported as not non-fatal or downgraded in some way, homicide being murder and manslaughter. So there was a suggestion that he had signed off on this. However, he says he didn't. And furthermore, in the Sunday Times, John Mooney says he didn't get an advance copy of the report on homicide figures. This is fairly serious stuff that he's saying that he was misrepresented as having signed off on a report that he hadn't even seen an advance copy of. So again, it places the commissioner, I think, in even more difficulty. There's also a piece uh, below that by Jim Cusick in the Sunday Independent saying, you know, um, referring to a different issue which is the Temple Moor finances. That was the issue that was uh, being questioned uh, um, in the um, in the PAC, in the Public Accounts Committee during the week. And Cusack says, you know, Temple Moor finances may be tip of iceberg for Commissioner. There are so many tips of iceberg at this stage. It's, it's very hard to see how she can stay on. You're talking about the Charlton Commission of Investigation into the alleged smear campaign against Morris McCabe, the whistleblower. That's ongoing, you know, and yet and even since that was set up, we've seen all of these other things coming out. The new, th- the new this new... Uh, um, revelation that, that this another civilian, Garchan Singh, has has uh, been misrepresented, and that in fact he didn't sign off on this report. The Temple Moor audit rumbling on, the discrepancy between the commissioner who says there was a brief cup of tea and John Barrett, the uh, uh, the Garda Human Resource Director, another civilian who says he briefed her at length over two and a half hours. You know, uh, Deputy Alan Kelly uh, quizzing them on this in the Mail on Sunday is a big piece about the discrepancies. There's just so much there, and now you have a new policing authority come in that is, you know, I think a very very positive development. We're seeing public hearings with the commissioner called into the policing authority but it just seems that it's too late. If we'd seen a policing authority set up in 2005 when we had the Garda Act introduced a lot of us said then, let's see better civilian oversight of the Garda and more of a separation between Department of Justice and Garda Management. Didn't happen in 2005. It's happened too late I think to deal with some of these really serious systemic failings we're now seeing coming to light. Bernard Harbour uh, people say that the problems at the top of the Garda 
are so endemic and pervasive across a whole echelon that getting, you know, uh, Rory Quinn's phrase, a head on a plate won't solve the problem. Uh, would you accept that argument? I think that that's, there's a lot to be said for that argument. I, th- I think I agree with uh, Ivana. I think the Commissioner's position is becoming more and more unsustainable simply because the, uh, you know, across the dial, uh, across the press, uh, and, you know, just talking to people, you know, people are saying that they don't have the confidence in the police commissioner that you'd need uh, in in any country. But I think it's true to say that there's simply removing one person or changing the personnel at the top uh, isn't going to be enough to change the culture of the Gardaí. It's not going to be enough to deal with all of, all of the problems which seem to be systemic. And I think if there's one positive uh, signal we can bring from this story, which is becoming more and more complex and confusing, it's the uh, the value of professional administrators and managers that are being brought into the system uh, and are uncovering practices which perhaps perhaps we shouldn't expect guarded uh, uniformed guardie to be expert in or on top of. Uh, and I think it shows the value not just in the in, in the police service but across the public service of having that professionalism at an administrative level uh, and a management level. A, a group of workers that are often maligned, I think, in the in the public discourse. But I think we're seeing the value. Uh, of expertise and, and uh, you know, top quality people there. And I think, you know, John Barrett and his colleagues have come out very well uh, out of this story this week. I, I have to say, uh, obviously not the first to say this, but the scenes in the Public Accounts Committee were quite extraordinary where you had uh, two people from the same organisation, uh, you know, fundamentally... Uh, Who do you believe? Uh, well, I, I'm not expert in this area, but uh, but uh, but you know, it's. It, it, well, it seems that someone else. <laughs> it's such. A, it's such a. I mean, it's. it's one guy it, had a written account of what see, happened, it's, it's which kind of helps. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, 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 it shows the importance but, of taking minutes absolutely. at meetings. But, it, but it's also. I mean, it's also uh, raises the question of competence as well as culture, because I mean, uh, you, you should at least be able to get your so- story straight uh, in something as public and as important as uh, a Doyle committee. So. You know, once again, just the, the, the detail of the exchange uh, was undermining, but the fact that it happened at all was was equally problematic, it seemed to me. Um, Cormac Lucy, you, you've been in uh, the Department of Justice. You, you know the culture there. Uh, some people would say that the real core problem is the Department of Justice fails to provide the oversight and regulation of the force that every other organisation from GSOC uh, to the police authority are now being brought in. First of all, uh, if, if you were advising the Minister for Justice today, would you be saying it's time to get rid of Noreen O'Sullivan as Commissioner? I would. And to be quite honest, I would have been s- suggesting that the Minister think of that as far back as December 2015, uh, 18 months ago, when the inspectorate reported effectively that there was no clear governance within Angarda Siakana. The news and the political focus follows individual stories. But if you look at the organisational diagnosis, it's absolutely poisonous uh, in, its, in its conclusion. And uh, at that point, Noreen O'Sullivan needed to be either replaced or to get major help from outside if, if she, to, to do the job and to make the Gardaí run effectively. I think it's got to the stage now where, you know, I think it is a necessary but not sufficient condition for effective Garda reform that she goes. Uh, that of itself will not improve things. We've had Garda guard commissioners replaced. I think what is keeping her in place is the fact that this government, having axed uh, one Garda commissioner, or the Finneguel-led government having axed Martin one Garda Callan. commissioner, is reluctant to admit that they got that wrong or that, that in, in choosing the replacement... And I think it's political considerations that are keeping uh, Noreen O'Sullivan in place. If a a Garda commissioner that this government had inherited 
had been accused of the things that she's being accused of and if the errors that have been announced uh, had been announced under a, a different commissioner's watch, I've no doubt that she would have been got rid of by now. One of the issues uh, that has come to light is not informing the Minister for Justice. Um, how, how do you, like Frances Fitzgerald, is she out of her depth in all of this? Well, I think Frances is... Uh, there was a great scene in, in the movie The Godfather where uh, the adopted son... Uh, Tom Hayden said, you know, said we need a wartime consigliere. And I don't think Francis is a wartime consigliere. She's not a wartime minister to deal with absolutely crunch issues. I think she's an emollient, even-tempered, competent, but just to to make a hard decision to brutally sack somebody, especially when it tacitly admits I made an error in appointing her in the first place. I think that may be beyond her. And I think we may need to see a new Fine Gael leader, a new Taoiseach and a new Minister for Justice before we see a change in the government's stance towards Noreen O'Sullivan. Well, uh, I, I would disagree with Cormac in terms of timing. I must say that. I mean, you, you, Cormac, you say December 2015, there was grounds to sack uh, Noreen O'Sullivan. I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's right because at that point it appeared that she was in the process of implementing a reform agenda. She'd only been, she hadn't been very long in the position. I think, though, what's happened since then has clearly illustrated um, the, you know, the fact that she hasn't been able to implement those reforms. We're now in 2017. So I think the case is much stronger stronger now for sacking. I think Frances, Frances Fitzgerald, has, uh, her strength has been in, in keeping the ship steady all along. I mean, you remember the, cri- the crises in policing in 2014 that led to Alan Shatter's or, you know, in, uh, among the things that led but to Alan Shatter's. But is this Shatter's a ship we want gone. kept steady? But, you, you know, I think now we know a commissioner should be appointed from outside. I think that, that now becomes... Outside the jurisdiction? Well, I, well certainly outside the, the organisation. I mean, Bernard talks about the, you know, professional civilian management coming in and bringing a new culture into Angarda Shikon and a lot of the revelations in the last week or so, or so really illustrate that. So we do need, I think, to have somebody come in who is not from the very defensive culture within We the heard from Niall Kelly, the head of uh, internal audit in the Gardaí. Now let's focus on the other person at the centre of this, John Barrett. He is on Garda Shea executive director of Human Resources, uh, another uh, civilian. Um, here he, he, he and the commissioner failed to agree on the length of meeting they both attended when they appeared before the PAC on Thursday. Take a listen. There was a very brief conversation in a room after a meeting in Templemore in which Mr. Barrett raised certain issues specifically around some work he was doing uh, when I was present along with the two Deputy Commissioners and the Chief Administrative Officer. Uh, My recollection is very brief. How brief? Five minutes, ten minutes? I would say, um, I don't know Deputy, but I would say from recollection and from memory it was brief. Okay, can I, thank you, does that tally with your recollection? The meeting Mr. Barrett, two hours. The meeting was two hours. It was. It's in the minute. Can I ask the Commissioner? So the meeting was actually two hours isn't brief, is it? Deputy, my memory is that it was a brief meeting after a very long meeting that we had in the Garda College. And uh, my memory is that it was brief and the, the issues in relation to the college, but there was an undertaking given uh, that basically there would be a report. Uh, okay, no, we, we just need to get to the bottom. We just need clarity mm. on this. Because in, in nobody's language is a two-hour exchange brief. Okay. My memory is, and I can only go on my memory. Yeah, fine, sure. All, my memory all, yeah. is that after a long meeting in the Garda College, I, accompanied by the Chief Administrative Officer and two Deputy Commissioners, were in the reception room having some tea 
Mr. Barrett arrived into the room and t uh, spoke about the issues in the... Okay. Um, Mr. Barrett, obviously the, you felt that the, it was a, a... The time is in the meeting. Yeah. I, I make a reference to when the meeting began. What time did it begin at? I'll give you the details. The meeting began and ended. It started at 5.20. It even details the, the, the order in which people came into the room, believe it or not. Well, there you heard the Commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan, uh, John Barrett himself, Mary Lou MacDonald and Alan Kelly. And just one additional piece of information in today's Mail on Sunday. It has alternative version of events. 24th of July 2015, a different person, the Head of Legal Affairs in Garda Síochána, contacted Garda Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan to say that the issues in the Audit Committee report prepared by the Head of Human Resources were so serious that the Justice Minister should be made aware of them under Section 41 of the Garda Síochána. Corn Act 2005. I put it to you that but for the Commissioner wanting to defend herself at the Charlton Tribunal, her position is utterly unsustainable on these net issues. I, agree, I do agree with you, Ivan, and I do think if you look at that alternative version set out in the Mail on Sunday, you see, um, again, this is coming from Alan Kelly, Deputy Alan Kelly, who says in the Dáil, who alleged during the week in the Dáil that the Head of Legal Affairs, another civilian within the Gardaí, had contacted the Commissioner earlier in July than the meeting between herself and John Barrett, later in July, about which the time is disputed, but that the Head of Legal Affairs had contacted the Commissioner on the 6th of July to say that uh, matters at Templemore this is around the accounting irregularities the financial irregularities alleged that these were so serious that the Justice Minister should be made aware of them. Now the Commissioner says she wasn't made aware of this on the 6th of July so there's further discrepancies so the more you go into this and again it does get highly complex but the more you go into this the more discrepancies there are between what the Commissioner says she knew at what time and how long she spent discussing issues and what the civilian officials not just John Barrett the Head of Human Resources but also the Head of Legal affairs, you know, the discrepancies between what they say they told her and what she says she was told. The, so the it's o untenable. The yes. other issue, Bernard, is um, public money. Uh, the, the embezzlement question, to use Deputy Alan Farrell's word. Um, here you have a situation whereby they couldn't get money from the Department of Justice for things they wanted to spend money on in Templemore. And they effectively used the restaurant to raise revenue, um, which was being publicly subsidised, and they created, for example, 100,000, they opened umpteen uh, bank accounts, and they, you know, 100,000 for a private boat club. I mean, surely, surely someone should be calling in the fraud squad there. Well, I mean, if, if you're spending public money, you have to be accountable. And uh, God knows there's enough uh, pressure on the budget in the in the, uh, in the the police force and elsewhere that, you know, you, you have to be able to be accountable. And the, the, the scenes from the Doyle, the Public Accounts Committee, with the, 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 the sound there of Alan Kelly and Mary Lou shooting fish in a barrel are quite extraordinary. But so are these figures, you know, the, the story that we heard out of Temple Moor. Now, I, I understand that things have moved on uh, quite substantially there that the civilian management is in Templemore now and getting that situation under control. But I'd agree with you 100%. Then there needs to be accountability for what has happened as well as reform to ensure that it, it doesn't happen again. Cormac, same old story. We just don't do accountability in this country? We don't. The problem is we now have a gravely damaged Guard Commissioner who is devoting considerable mental energy to defending her position rather than to managing the force. It was telling there that when there, she was being questioned about this meeting with John Barrett, she had the same line of defence. It was a brief meeting, and that is according to my recollection. So she had clearly given some thought in advance to how she was going to defend herself. 
She's now facing the Charlton Tribunal. So who who is she acting for in the next six to 12 months? Is it defending her own position and the institutional legacy she inherited or is it managing and guarding she a corner for the benefit of us all? And the, I think there's another point here that's worth mentioning briefly, which is yep. that the, the morale of the force is at stake here yeah. as well because... You know, it, it is the, the police force does. But a very did good it not strike you? I, I listened carefully to both the GRA and AGSI conferences, and there was a huge, you know, whether it's a million breath test, there was a huge reluctant reluctance to, for anyone to stand up and say, actually, you know, yeah. we are in the wrong. Like people tell me, the story about the breath tests is it's all about overtime. It was all to manufacture, you know, if you did more breath tests, you got more overtime. I don't know whether that's true or not, but the fact of the matter is, is, is there a failure throughout, you know, people say, ah, oh, it's unfair to come down on the ordinary, you know, guardie on the beat. The fact of the matter is, it was the ordinary guardie in the road traffic department who actually did the false breath tests. There's no but getting they, over that. But my point is, the some, I mean, clearly some did, but uh, that doesn't mean that everybody in the police force has been, uh, you know, been doing the wrong thing or acting. But is it not uh, circling the wagon? Well, I think there is a degree of circling the wagon, which we see quite frequently in all kinds of organisations when they're under attack. But I think that the leadership of an organisation, one of its jobs is to defend the reputation of the organisation and to protect the morale of the people who are delivered in very, very difficult uh, in very difficult circumstances, as we know. So I think that, you know, this this is also at stake as this story rumbles on and uh, as Cormac says, could go on for another number of months without being really but resolved. I, I do think it does point up problems at, at supervision level and again this came through in the guard inspe- the policing inspectorate reports over the years. It's inadequate supervision, you know, a culture where, for example, a lot of the, pro- the huge problems for victims of crime where crimes were simply not being investigated. There were, this was the subject of previous reports and really what was happening was probationary guardy were left on their own to investigate serious crimes and, and this was happening in different districts across the country, it appears, without adequate supervision or training. So the fault doesn't lie with the probationers who are doing this or the, the new guardie coming in. Clearly okay. there was an endemic failure at, at management level. You're listening to Yates on Sunday. We're talking. My panel this morning is Cormac Lucy, Ivana Batchik and Bernard Harbour. Bernard, let's come to you. Um, the Lansdowne Road Agreement has uh, a little more than a year to run, I think. But uh, the government set up this Public Service Pay Commission uh, to provide a blueprint for the, what will come after that. Um, obviously uh, there are potential leaks of the memo going to Cabinet and the report going to Cabinet this week about what it might say about pension contributions. First of all, just set the scene for us insofar as is this one of many reports? Are they producing a singular report? And what do you expect it to say? They've been asked to um, produce an an initial report, which is what this has been called. I think we'll we'll have to wait and see uh, if there are further reports in the future. But they've been asked to advise the government on the unwinding of the FEMPI legislation, which is the legislation that introduced pay cuts and the pension levy in 2009-2011. So they've been asked to do that in the context of a number of things, including public and private pay comparisons, uh, international pay comparisons where data exists, um, the the value of pensions, which I think will be, which I've said this week, in fact, will be, I think, the the central issue of contention in the talks that will follow the Commission's report. We're expecting, um, I don't have a guarantee on this, but we're expecting the report to be ready for Cabinet this week, if not probably next week. Uh, and we would expect uh, an invitation to a negotiation to to issue fairly quickly after Cabinet has seen, uh, uh, assuming it approves and accepts the report, that they, they'd move quite quickly to a negotiation. Pa- Pascal Dan- uh, Donoghue has uh, fired a preemptive shot saying that um, he's looking to, to change pension uh, reckonability in terms of linking it to inflation rather than the pay grade of the one you're in and to average earnings. Um, how strongly will you resist those changes? 
Well, I think there are, there are, what is it, 3.3 billion we're paying on public yeah, sector pensions? There, there, there are two themes that have come out from the Minister and from others in, in advance of the publication of the Commission report. One is about the value of the pensions, the things that you mentioned about whether they should be linked to, you know, increases should be linked to inflation or whether they should be linked to pay, things like that. Uh, and the other issue which the Minister has been particularly strong on is the, the contribution that public servants make towards their pensions, which actually at the moment, if you include the pension levy, is, is quite high. Uh, what is I, it exactly? Well, if you... It's over uh, 24 grand, it goes up, does it? Yeah, if, you, if you're if you earning €28,750, uh, at that point, each extra euro you earn, about 20 or 21% of that goes to one form or another of pension contributions. But I've seen from the Davy report that they calculate the value of defined benefit pensions about 30% of salary. Um, I, I've seen the Davy report as well, which doesn't go into great detail on this. I think the Pay Commission probably will go into a little more, uh, little more detail on, on this. And I know certainly the Public, Account, uh, Public Services Committee of Congress and the Department have both put uh, actuarial uh, assessments into the Commission. So I think the, wor- the work that's being done on there on pensions uh, is likely to be uh, you know, state-of-the-art in terms of uh, actually trying to Factual. put an actual, actuarial value on this. Now, Ivan, people won't agree, and of course pensions... Uh, uh, assessing the value of pensions is a long, t- you know, it's a long-term um, calculation that you're making. You can use different assumptions, and different assumptions can be reasonable and lead to different uh, to different outcomes. So I think that there's there's a lot to play for there. But I think that it's it's accepted, uh, including by the unions, that the pension is valuable. Uh, that the uh, public servants, on average, will have a, have a better pension arrangements than most people in the private sector. I think that's accepted. I think the quantum of that will be a, an issue for debate. And my feeling is certainly my union impact. Uh, our um, priority will be to protect the value of the pensions, uh, accepting that the other side, the, the minister and his officials, will seek to increase the, uh, the contribution if we want to do that. Now, Cormac Lucy, you, you've written extensively about this whole issue. You're not happy with the composition of the commission to start with? That's right. A six-member commission, three of whom are trade unionists or retired trade unionists, even though... uh, But that hardly makes them criminals, does it? (laughs) No, but only 27% of the workforce is uh, is a member of a trade union. That means it's about 12% of the total population. So we have a a public body where the population is not being reflected in the composition of this public body and instead the government is conceding significant ground before the body even begins its work to the body or to the people with whom they are negotiating. You think it's congenitally designed to be favourable to public sector workers? Definitely. Uh, And, you know, the premise of the public sector worker pay demands is that they are underpaid. But if you look at the data and compare that to other countries... Irish public sector workers are paid very highly. So the average wage in Ireland across the entire economy, public and private, is just below the Eurozone average. Public admin and defence pay, largely public sector, that's 44% above the Eurozone average here. Education sector pay, 53% above the Eurozone average. Human health and social work activities, 36% above the Eurozone average. So my, my big concern is Ireland prospers enormously from the foreign direct investment sector. A disproportionate share of the economic dividends from that sector have gone to public sector pay. And now 
stability of our FDI appeal is under threat, not least from Monsieur Macron in France, who, who's publicly mentioned it and who wants the EU, who wants greater tax harmonisation. OK, so, so Tom Garrity, the PSEU, has said, look, we're looking for 1.6 billion for pay restoration and all the rest of it. What do you think the government should do? I think they should consider having a referendum on the question of public sector pay. I think going into commissions, going into sort of front row scrummaging against experienced trade unionists, that has not proven to be a winning strategy in the past. A referendum to do what? I mean, like, you know how scrappy referendums can be. They're always not about what they're about. A referendum to bring Just Irish imagine public the commission sector, and everything. The, the, the premium that Irish public sector pay, uh, public sector workers are given to bring that down to the Eurozone average. Specifically, what do you think should be done about the pension question? I think that we need transparency. We need an annual report that says, that quantifies what the benefit of that is so that at least when public discussion is taking place uh, or when pay demands are being made, that the value of that cannot be ignored. Ivana Bacic, your party leader, Brendan Howland, said during the week that it would be unconstitutional to change the pension regime. Uh, you're a lawyer. Tell me how it's unconstitutional. I think he was referring to uh, property rights in the Constitution. I think that, that's the, um, that was that reference. I should say I find it an extraordinary suggestion Cormac's making to have a referendum on public sector pay. I think well, asking be, the people is something be, the Labour Party is uh, allergic to, isn't it? No, that's absolutely... You know that's ridiculous. <laughs> We're calling for a referendum, of course, on repeal of the Eighth Amendment uh, and uh, other referendums, indeed, on blasphemy, which I know will be coming to mm. later in, this, uh, in the show. But uh, I should say this, you know, a referendum on public sector pay is entirely... Uh, ridiculous a, a, a suggestion. It's not necessary. Clearly, we're going to have, we're going to now enter into a period of negotiations. Uh, we, we see the we see the commission report, as, Brent, as uh, Bernard has said, due to be uh, due to be published very shortly, and that will give us a direction to unions and government negotiators. But I would say I don't think it's helpful to start back on that old chestnut of the public versus private, public sector versus private sector, and you know who's got the better deal and so on. Well, I just on, 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 hold on a second, hold on a second, just on that. Well, let me tell you why that might be a relevant route to have. For this reason, if we have declining tax revenue, which might be a hiccup, but if we have a limited fiscal space in the threat of Brexit, and someone says all of the fruits of growth, 1.6 billion, should go to public servants, as opposed to raising uh, the threshold on which 33,800 where people pay 51% tax, which would help all workers. There's four times more private sector workers in the economy than there are public sector workers. Surely it's fairer to increase pay by cutting income tax rather than giving it to one group of workers. Well, in fact, what we have a motion, Labour has a motion in the doll this week on, on the need to fund infrastructure and that's what we're really looking at and that will help both public and private sector workers and indeed all of us to look at investment in infrastructure rather than using, for example, mm. the of the <coughs> sale of the state stake in AIB to bring down the well, national debt. that's on debt. the capital account. So, I'm talking you know, about the current account. Yeah, but, but I think that from public and private sector side, what we want mm. to see is investment in public services. We're seeing this week really serious uh, figures on hospital waiting lists, on people waiting, uh, people waiting for operations, highest number ever. We're seeing housing crisis continuing. So people want to see investment in public services. And that means ensuring that you have decent levels of pay and conditions for public sector workers. And that benefits all of us, private and public sector alike. So, so again, I don't 
don't the think, problem. Throw no, money at no, everything. don't throw money at the problem. But we're going to see a negotiated deal, a successor to the Lansdowne Road Agreement. Lansdowne Road has successfully managed uh, managed uh, to deliver public, continue to deliver public services uh, without huge amount of industrial action, without huge amounts of disruption. We've seen some changes this year in that, but I think what the best hope for all of us, public and private alike, is to see a decent successor to Lansdowne Road negotiate. Uh, Bernard, when I was away in America at the latter half of last year, I intermittently rang home and said, what's happening? And they said, oh, there's Garda strikes, there's teacher strikes, there's nurses strikes. And it does seem to me, and I'm asking you this in the context of the Public Services Committee uh, and your union and, and, and other unions, that the Garda and the nurses effectively got a special deal over and above Lansdowne Road. Is there antipathy within the trade union movement in the Public Sector Services Committee that it isn't the same treatment for everybody? Well, we've taken the view that uh, everybody went into the pay cuts and the pension levy together and people should come out of that together. We've, in the Irish Congress of Trade Unions and in Impact, we've said that the uh, if, there, if, there's, if someone's to get an advantage, it should be people at the lower end of the earnings scale rather than people in particular grades or doing particular jobs. Uh, it's, we're all on record as saying that the guards did get a, a head start back in uh, November, December, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we're Wasn't back in earlier talks might now. is right? Well, there were threats of industrial. There were more threats of industrial action than there was industrial action. But uh, uh, I mean, clearly, the government um, uh, made concessions to the Gardaí, which they hadn't made to other public servants, and that had the effect of undermining the stability that had come with the with the agreement. I think it's um, one, just going back a little bit. I think it's important to say that uh, you mentioned uh, Tom Geraghty of the PSEU uh, talking about restoration of 1.6 billion. It's government policy now to restore the cuts that were introduced during the worst crisis. But on the never-never. Well, over a, period, over a period of time, and that's going to be the Do issue. Do you think that's 2% going to be the a year would but, be a reasonable but, but, but my point is that my point, my point is that uh, Tom Garrity was not saying anything that's not in the public discourse uh, in any case, it's the, the question is going to be over what period of time is it affordable and sustainable to do that? And I think that's what we're going to be negotiating about probably later this month. Ultimately, this is a political question, Cormac. Uh, do you um, sense that uh, anyone in Dáil Éireann has the backbone to resist these vested interests? No, and I think uh, it may take a political insurgency of the sort that we have seen in the United States uh, in France, where established parties are pushed aside. You know, it's interesting that the Labour Party in Britain and in Ireland started up as a party to defend uh, pretty much private sector workers. But it's morphed in the meantime into sort of a metropolitan uh, bourgeois party and in, in many cases have, has lost loads of votes. If, if we look at this year's government budget, we see that the truth of your point there. There was an increase in current spending of £1.2 billion Eight hundred million of that went on increased public sector pay. Two hundred million went on increased welfare. So only about twenty percent of the increase in government current spending actually went on frontline services. The rest went on pay and welfare. And I think the political system doesn't have the backbone to stand up to the unions and to defend uh, the majority of voters' interests on this matter. Just, just make the additional point that the, the Sunday Business Post uh, today uh, repeats the, uh, the, the findings <clears throat> of a poll it, it held at the end of last year where the majority of people said that they supported public service pay restoration, the majority including everybody, public and private. So I don't think that that big divide exists. I think everybody came through a very bad recession. It hit people in different ways uh, across different sectors. And well, I think there were th- no and, and redundancies in th- the public th- th- No, there were no redundancies, but I stood, I stood up in meetings and asked people to vote in favour of an agreement that would cut their pay, extend their working hours, 
and reduce their condition. So people made sacrifices in different ways in different parts of the economy. But I think the point now is that, we're, we, that there are threats, there are dangers in the economic terrain, but we're coming out of a recession, the, the, the economy is stronger. And I think people, regardless of where they work and what they do for a living, are, are not tit for tat about this. They want to see everybody improve their, their incomes. And it's the stagnation of incomes that's led to Le Pen and to... Brexit and to Trump. It's not uh, vested interest in the public service or else. And there's also another interesting thing about the growth of the far right. I, mean, I disagree, of course, with Cormac's characterisation of the Labour Party, but I would say this, that if you look at the growth of the right it, across Europe, it hasn't been in countries that have experienced the worst austerity or the worst recessions. It's in fact been in the wealthier countries. So I don't agree with his thesis at all. I think we're seeing a fear and an anger <coughs> that is uh, fueling, of course, uh, Le Pen in, Fra- in France and the Brexit voters in Britain and so on. But those are countries that didn't experience the sort of terrible recessions we saw in Greece, for example where you haven't had that growth. So I think, you know, and, and, and the US is particularly interesting because, again, it, you didn't see the same, uh, the same sort of recession and yet tr- the Trump rise was really due to a whole range of, of factors and, of course, Hillary Clinton still won the popular vote. So I think, you know, we can be a little bit doomsday in our predictions about, uh, about, the, about these issues and changes in politics. Now, we have so many stories about Garda resources and personnel being stretched in so many ways, the shortage of people, the squeeze on their resources. Well... Apparently, according to the front page of the Sunday Times, Stephen Fry blasphemy inquiry is welcomed. Um, this dates to an interview that Stephen Fry gave uh, to Gay Byrne on his Meaning of Life um, programme back in 2015. Roll it there, Gay. Suppose it's all true mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in on that? but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were... They didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Totally selfish. Totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a... not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. I don't know. I know people take offence easily, but for the love of Jesus, this is effing ridiculous. Cormac, what say you? Well, I think he's 
being, uh, he's raising reasonable questions uh, and it is in the context of a religious programme where he's being asked his religious views. Uh, I also think that our blasphemy law is, is also a bit ridiculous. You know, it was brought in by Dermot O'Hearn five or six years ago to solve a problem that existed in theory but didn't exist in practice to, because we had a constitutional reference to blasphemy but there was no statute referring to blasphemy. So uh, I think this is much ado about nothing. Uh, I think it's unlikely there will actually be a prosecution over this. Yeah, well, what's the, the, the backstory to this, Ivana? Um, insofar as a guy in Ennis said to the guards, uh, look, here's the interview, it breaches the blasphemy law, and next thing he gets a call from a guard in Donnybrook saying they're investigating it. Well, the extraordinary thing is that it is being followed up apparently by the guards because, I mean, when we debated the blasphemy, the Defamation Act in the Shannon in 2009 and the Dáil, when it was, uh, when that was the act that introduced the new offence of blasphemy, as Cormac says, by Dermot O'Hearn, there was disbelief, utter disbelief as to why Dermot O'Hearn was doing this. It was un- unnecessary, it was dangerous, and in fact, those of us who were highly critical of the offence were, I think, just, were, you know, the criticism was shown to be justified subsequently when we saw countries with very repressive laws on freedom of speech, um, you know, speaking of Ireland as a model because of our blasphemy law. Pakistan, for example, talking about Ireland as a model. So what's laughable is that the guards would follow up on a complaint that somebody clearly made in Ennis Garda station in order to test the law and to test and to show just how, how crazy it is that we have this law on our statute books, creating criminal offence with a fine of up to €25,000 for those who utter blasphemous libel. And I know Atheist Ireland have, uh, have uh, welcomed the fact that this highlights the stupidity of the law and really illustrates the needs for, need for its repeal. And I would just say that's that's all it does. And let's hope this investigation goes no further. So, so Bernard, uh, should this uh, be referred to the DPP? Should poor Grebo be incarcerated? What do you think? Well, in my house, I've been arguing for some time now that uh, Stephen Fry should be incarcerated for this smug fest that was the his GI programme. Uh, right. QI programme, I beg Crimes your pardon. against humanity, you think? Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, cruel and unusual. But uh, I, I think, I mean, I agree with the other, other panellists. This is, this is utterly ridiculous. In some ways, it's not unreasonable to say that if a law exists, it should be upheld. Well, that is the next uh, point. But, do, but, we, do, we, do we enforce the law or not? But, but the, the fact that the law is there is, is, is quite ridiculous. And the fact that it's only a few years old, when I had a look at this, you, my, my assumption was that this was something, some relic from the past that was... Uh, a hangover in the, in the legislation, but of course it's only a few years old. It's quite it's only a few quite ridiculous. Old. It's embarrassing. And this is in the this this uh, story I noticed is in the British press this morning and doesn't reflect at all well on on Ireland. It has to be said. Okay, I must say there's story. all sorts of all sorts of funny religions being set up by the Church of this flying spaghetti monster and so on to try and test this law. As well. The final story I want to come to, and I will start with you, Ivana, on this. Uh, all your ilk have been up in arms, outraged uh, that uh, we should not reveal, um, according to Charlie Flanagan, how we voted in terms of the Saudi Arabian nominee on the UN Women's Commission. Um, do you think the minister will relent? The Independent Alliance have said they're going to demand uh, whether we abstained or to find out whether we abstained or voted in favour. What do you think? Well, I'm glad to see the Independent Alliance are, going, are demanding the minister reveal to them how he voted. I think it's very problematic that he has told us that not only will he not tell the people how Ireland voted on the decision to admit uh, Saudi Arabia to the UN Commission on the Status of Women, but that he hasn't even told his cabinet colleagues there's such a thing in the constitution as collective cabinet responsibility. Each of each member of cabinet is responsible for the decisions taken by ministers. And I frankly, I don't see how, how uh, um, Charlie Flanagan can stand behind a, a convention about not disclosing a vote on the UN bodies in order, to, uh, uh, in order to actually keep his own colleagues in the dark. So I very much hope the Independent Alliance people will actually uh, um, 
we put a bit of pressure on the minister on Tuesday in, in, at Cabinet and that we will see him revealing. I mean, the Belgian government has revealed they, vo- they voted for Saudi. They've apologised for that. Uh, I should say that even if one could defend the, the general convention of not disclosing your vote, which I don't think it is dispensable, it goes back to an old Cold War era of diplomatic relations. But even if you were to say in general that's a convention, this actually was unprecedented. The US had pressed for a vote on Saudi's membership of this commission in a situation where normally there is never a vote. There were only five candidates for five countries. The fact they pressed for the vote and that seven countries did not vote for Saudi uh, means that you know it, it has placed this in a completely different setting because Saudi has such a dreadful record on women's C- rights. Cormac, Ailish uh, O'Hanlon is writing about this in the back page of the Sunday Independent and she's saying the stench of hypocrisy is overwhelming. Uh, she points to Irish companies have been on official trade min- um, missions to Saudi Arabia, valuable contracts in IT, telecom, software, healthcare and pharmaceuticals, education and construction. Like, if we really are so concerned about women not being able to drive cars in Saudi and all that good stuff, surely we shouldn't trade with them. Surely this is hypocrisy. No. You know, the fact that we disagree with another country on how they handle a certain matter doesn't mean that we should uh, cease we'll all still contact take with them. Of course we will, yeah. And why not? Uh, what, what, what galls me more about this is Charlie Flanagan's justification for this convention of non-disclosure, where he says that it is to stop small countries being unduly influenced or threatened by large countries. But the notion that the Americans and the Russians, with all of their powerful electronic uh, surveillance techniques, don't know just how we voted is, is laughable. So the only people who are effectively being left in the dark are the Irish people to whom the Irish government is supposedly answerable. And apparently other members of the government. Somebody suggested to me during the week that Ireland may have voted against Saudi or you know, not voted for Saudi and that that's why Charlie Flanagan doesn't want to disclose. He doesn't want to annoy the Saudis, which I must say is a whole different interpretation. But I think it is laughable that you st- they stand behind this convention. It's, it's unwarranted. And when you have a situation where there is actually a vote, an un- this sort of unprecedented vote, where there is a country with such a record as Saudi, I think then the minister should disclose. And I think it is different to trade missions. I mean, this is prom- promoting Saudi Arabia onto a position on a United Nations Commission for the Status of Women. It's quite different than going to trade missions and discussing and um, raising Bernard, human rights issues. Is there not a counterpoint that exposing the Saudis in the UN to what other civilizations are doing in terms of equality, of gender equality, uh, this might actually help? Well, I think, that, I mean, there is a point that engagement can sometimes lead to change, even if it's engagement with a, with a, a government or a policy that you don't agree with. So I, I think that there's something to that. And the Sunday Times today in its editorial kind of talks about this, the, the, the need for more sophistication, I guess, and more clarity and sophistication about our engagement and our policy towards Saudi Arabia and countries with similar policies. But I think, I mean, ultimately, it's... I understand the concept of a secret ballot. I can even understand the rationale about small, small countries being bullied by bigger countries. But I think the situation we have now is that we are asking how has this vote been cast in our name? We're not, we, and, and that's a different thing from saying uh, the, the USA or Russia or Saudi Arabia itself is asking how you voted. So I think it's going to be very hard to sustain the idea that uh, the people of Ireland shouldn't know how our vote was cast at the UN on this issue. Some of your texts on the things we've been discussing, Joe says we should replace Noreen O'Sullivan with someone from outside Ireland, like former New York Police Commissioner Bill Bratton. Uh, And people say, bring Stephen Fry to court, call God as a witness, compel him to show up. That'll sort it out, says John Murphy in Limerick. And the final word, if Stephen Fry is to be prosecuted for blasphemy, does that mean our 
beloved Gabo should be prosecuted for incitement for asking the question that garnered such a response. Uh, we will be, like, lobby and campaign on this programme to keep gay outside of uh, Mount Joy. I'd like to thank my panel Cormac Lucy of the Sunday Times and lots of other things, Senator Ivana Batchik and of TCD and Mr Bernard Harbour, spokesperson for the Impact Trade Union for being my guest. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.